1: I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. Here you'll find interviews with writers you already love, like Jennifer Egan and Rebecca Mackay, mixed in with up-and-coming voices like Alexandra Kleeman and Rahman Alam. You'll find us wherever you listen to podcasts, but check out previous episodes at burnedbybooks.com and on Instagram and Twitter at BurnedByBooks. Let's start the show. When Hilary Leichter's novel Temporary came onto the literary scene, it felt like it was doing something radical in its cruel satire of capitalist work. It has a style and sensibility that shakes its readers out of their days and habit and asks us all to reconsider the role that our labor plays in our lives. Hillary has returned with yet another extraordinary novel, Terra Story, and this time she takes up the architecture that shapes and contours our lives, with spaces both real and imaginary, becoming characters in a story of loss and the search for belonging in a gone-away world. Constructed around four scenes, two with married couples and two with single women, Terra Story draws loose lines of connection between families of blood and the made families of everyday kinship and friendship. The first Terra Story, told on an actual terrace, created seemingly out of unorganized matter, takes up the loss of self and the need for intimacy and community. The terrace itself becomes a catalyst for the telling of stories that can bind and separate, make room and alienate. Later, the terrace will be a folly, an ornament of fancy, but which marks the desires and fears of a couple who mask their anxieties with puns and rolling stories of their own demise. Other stories will broach the ways in which we make spaces larger or smaller to draw others to us or push them away. Always shadowing these scenes of domestic intimacies are the extinctions of species that can no longer make a home for themselves in a climate that is tilting toward the inhospitable for all of Earth's creatures. A whirlwind of innovative forms and playful interconnections, Hillary's Terra story pushes the boundaries for what the novel can hold and how its spaces grow and shrink to match our feelings of longing. To live inside the novel is to remember the spaces that have shaped us and made our communities. Hilary Leichter is the author of the novel Temporary, which was a finalist for the Center for Fiction First Novel Prize and the New York Public Library Young Lions Fiction Prize and was long listed for the Penn Hemingway Award. Hilary's other writings have appeared in The New Yorker and Plus One, The New York Times, Conjunctions, and Harper's Magazine. She has been awarded fellowships from Yaddo, the Folger Shakespeare Library, and the New York Foundation for the Arts. She teaches at Columbia University, where she is the undergraduate creative writing advisor in fiction. Welcome to the show, Hillary.
0: Chris, thank you so much for having me, and what a beautiful introduction. Thank you for that.
1: This is such an amazing novel. I finished it, and I looked up at my wife, and I said, this was something new and i really felt that way about temporary as well what a what a triumph to have two books that t- take a jaded professor and and make him feel like there's something new in the world so thank you for it
0: Oh, my God, that's what I live for, for, for the jaded professors everywhere.
1: <laughs> I, I want to talk about the, the first focal point is in this very tiny apartment of Annie and Edward, uh, and they're visited by their friend Stephanie. and And suddenly a door, which seemed to be a closet door, opens to a spacious terrace, furnished and beautifully lit and perfect for entertaining and taking in the city. The terrace is is more than just an undiscovered place. It is a physically impossible space. It catches the setting sun, even though the apartment faces east. It has dimensions larger than the physical space of their apartment and a geography that is askew from their position. It is a fantasy space that feels even more real the longer they sit and enjoy it. Why was it a terrace that appealed to you as an imaginary social space?
0: Well, to start, I live in Brooklyn, and that kind of outdoor space that isn't on the ground <laughs> is very appealing. Um, whether it's a, a rooftop terrace or a, a little bit of a Juliet balcony situation, um, so I was thinking, and I and I was living in a, a really small apartment with my husband. It was about four hundred square feet, and and it just it would have. It would have stretched us out into the world to have mm. a terrace. So that's that's what I started thinking about. But then, I think buried in your question is this other idea: why the word terrace? Because we have a lot of other ways of describing that kind of space. I mean, I just that's true. Yeah, I just use the word balcony. Um, even a fire escape is mm-hmm. is terrace esque. There there are verandas. There are roof decks. There are patios. There there are other there are other terrace adjacent words. I loved I love the word terrace. I think it's beautiful to say. I think it's beautiful on the page. I love that it has that prefix terrace. So it has the earth in it. Mm, Even if yeah, it has the it has that quality of being in midair and being on the ground at the same time, which was a feeling that I wanted the characters in the book to have and the readers to have. And then this book started as a short story and the title Terrace Story was very much what I just called the word document that was the story I was writing (laughs) Terrace. And then strangely, it became the only name for what was happening in that story. But it was it, it didn't start that way. But now thinking about it, terrace story, I love, I love the way it kind of slides together. It's a little bit hard to say. It's hard to separate the two words. Um, it almost feels like a portmanteau, though it's not really. Mm. And it has that looping around quality that I also wanted the book to have. So yeah, so that the word terrace was actually very deliberately chosen. And um, and it's not a coincidence, I think, that. The choosing of a word and a place is so tightly linked. The idea of places living inside words—that um, mm. this novel is curious about.
1: Oh my goodness! Yeah, you've you've opened up another space of thinking for me about it. And and now that I think of it, terrace has so many unique associations. I I feel like in that in that list of of words of possible exterior spaces, it does feel like it carries a, a great deal with it
0: it's a very literary word. And something that happened after I wrote, you know, the second or third draft of the book, I started finding terraces in in other books everywhere I looked. And I think there's something about stepping outside into the fresh air away from whatever's happening in the main scene that allows characters to say what they're really thinking or to have a moment that can exist outside of the plot or, you know, even the expression, let's take this outside Hmm. implies that there's something that the narrative can't contain. Mm -hmm. And so it spills over. And yeah, I think terraces are uh, important narrative structures Mm -hmm. to allow things to happen in books.
1: Wonderful. Have you read the cult classic, The House of Leaves? (laughs)
0: <laughs> it's,
1: it's, it's really the first novel that I read that, that made an excess of space an affecting element of the story, truly a kind of character. In that novel, that space is horror. In Tara's story, I feel like it is joy, discovery, some terror, and also a last-ditch effort at human society— how did you decide to make space a principal character or affect in the novel? And what was it like to play with its emotional qualities?
0: So the the main problem happening in the first 20 or 30 pages of the book, just to put it plainly, is that Annie and Edward, a, a married couple, um, they, they find a terrace hidden in their closet and they suddenly have more space than they had before and the terrace only appears when they invite their friend stephanie over and when she's not there there's no terrace so so i wanted the book if this makes sense to emulate what was happening to annie and edward i thought if if they're finding an extra space that wasn't there before in their world what would what would it be like to write a book That expands and contracts similarly for the reader. And that was a formal challenge that I set for myself, but it was also an emotional problem, too, thinking about what it means to feel a space. You know, what does it mean to feel something growing? What does it mean to feel something shrinking, to feel claustrophobic? What does it mean to feel? the vastness of the world? And how is that linked to loneliness? How is that linked to joy? How do all of these things collide? So the emotional questions of space and the formal questions were so tightly linked for me. Um, and, And the main solution that I found was in the structure of the book, you know, thinking about these four discrete sections, which really can't exist without each other but exist sort of distanced from each other and thinking about the space between those sections and how to use it how to take the omissions and the elisions between each part of the book that that don't tell you how the characters are connected that don't tell you what's happened in the intervening years and to use that to make the book feel like it was growing or collapsing um, and I think the I think the question of space is an emotional one. And it it's evidenced by the fact that we use the metaphor of space to describe so many feelings that we have and the way that we treat other people mm. too. And I think that when a physical problem makes its way into metaphor, it's because it's it's actually an internal <laughs> emotional problem too, the feeling of largeness or the feeling of smallness and how how we inhabit that
1: it's something that is so fundamental and yet we often lose sight of it yeah and i you know i i'll i'll be asking you later to to think more about that but i as as you were talking just now, I, I couldn't help think that Gaston Bachelard's the uh, poetics of space is is kind of in in conversation with what you're what, with what you're doing with space and emotion and how we house our our sense of the world, and you know Bachelard was was always thinking about architecture as a space of dreaming and longing and thinking, and space is a place for him that shapes our daydreaming which I think is very true about uh, your novel. Is, is Bachelard's Poetics of Space interesting to you? And and is it something that helped you think about space in this novel?
0: Oh, very interesting to me. Yeah, I actually hadn't read it until I was editing Tara's story. And that was the first time I, I was introduced to this book. And I thought, where have you been all my life? I
1: know. I think he was like inhabiting you from yeah. the from the grave.
0: And that word inhabit is so important to that book. It's so great that, that you just use that. And, and I think it's, it's important to me to just thinking about inhabiting, not just in Terra's story, but in everything I write. I love what he says about the way that prose, when it really, or poetry actually, when it really speaks to you, when it really brings off the page and is able to enter your life. It's this feeling of being inhabited, you know, it's this feeling of yeah. allowing space in yourself to to take something in. And I I I just, I mean, I absolutely love that book. And it was very important to me in thinking about editing Tara's story and editing it towards these ideas of of limited and expanding space. But but there was also something about that book that I took as a dare because you really. <laughs> He really craps on apartments, you know? <laughs>
1: oh, he does. He so does, yeah. Does? they're not big enough to inhabit your your memories and your your feelings.
0: they're not. And they're, you know, it's just people stacked on top of people. there's they're horizontal and daydreams are vertical. And so, you know, if you're living in an apartment stacked on top of someone else's apartment and there's it it lacks cosmicity. And you lose when you're in a skyscraper, you lose the heroism of having to take the stairs because you're just shooting up in an elevator. <laughs> but I, I love <laughs> I love that the heroism of having to take the stairs. Um, and it so I
1: feel very heroic. No, really, not
0: when you're on like, you know, the the fourth flight and you're like wheezing like me. But uh, but yes, yeah, so I, I was reading that. And and the book is really about houses and dream houses and And I thought, well, what would daydreams look like in an apartment? and And what would a horizontal daydream look like? And so, you know, that book was so influential. But I also wanted to try and create a little apartment off of his his ideas, where my characters could live.
1: well, I think you bested him in uh, <laughs> in, in in making him uh, have to reconsider from the grave uh, his oh thoughts God. on apartments. Uh, the you know when you were talking about terrace before I was thinking about Bachelard and the garret because yeah. he he thinks of that very vertical uh, space as so important in in uh, Jane Austen's work and the Brontes work yeah and and I think they're very they're it, it's a nice analog for the apartment that's the garret of the uh, apartment I think
0: absolutely yeah that's beautiful.
1: I couldn't help thinking that some might mistake this for a collection of linked stories. Mm -hmm. And the sections of the novel move from Annie and Edward to Lydia and George to Stephanie to Rosie, but their stories reveal themselves to be wound together and rooted in connections, familial and otherwise. I found that there's a unity uh, in the way that space operates as as a site of longing and loss in each vignette and and that, that felt much more novelistic than a, a a collection of linked stories but i wonder how you view the the discrete focalizations the discrete scenes and whether you think of them as stories or as as novel
0: i never thought of them as stories when i was writing the book except for the first chapter which was a standalone short story before the novel ever existed but I think that's the only section that can truly stand alone. It never even occurred to me that that they were stories. But that's the funny thing about writing a book. You don't really get to decide what it is <laughs> when it's finished. And um, and I welcome all, all different ideas about what, what the structure is. Um, but yeah, I always saw it as a novel, but a novel that that played with structure and a lo- a novel where the the kind of tension between the different parts of the book was essential. I've started in at events and and things calling them compartments instead of mm. chapters or sections. Oh, lovely, um, because I think you know we think about our our daily lives and you have to compartmentalize mm-hmm. emotions and feelings, and so much of the book is about feelings that ha- where there's no place to put them and so i've started thinking about them as compartments or very very long stanzas which of course is the word for room hmm. uh, and i like the idea of the the book as a house with different rooms that maybe exist not only in different parts of the house but in different times of the house too and and that was if anything that's what i was thinking about as i wrote it
1: that the uh, idea of compartmentalizing is is so great, and it made me think about you know temporary was was such an important book for me in in thinking about our our work ways and the ways in which we compartmentalize things. And you haven't you haven't given up that idea. And work is is a very important function of this novel and the ways in which we either compartmentalize or don't um, our work life. Annie has sees her work self basically slipping away and and wonders what that sort of outside compartment from work will be if if her work is is gone completely. Mm-hmm. And I, I wonder if you came to this novel with a different sense of what you wanted
0: to say about work. Gosh, I think it's just impossible to have been alive for the past five years and and not be thinking about work. So, mm-hmm. um, to be totally honest, I I wasn't thinking about work at all when I wrote this book. But of course, I was. Of course, <laughs> you know. I, of course, it made its way in there. And and I think that any problem or question worth tackling spills out from one book into the next. And I don't I don't think that temporary solved or answered any of my de- ideas about work or my questions about work. And and so I, I like the idea of there being this kind of remainder or stuff at the bottom of the book you just wrote that seeps into the next book. And that's how mm-hmm. I think about the way work makes itself known in, in Tara's story, because it's, you know, it's not central to the plot, but there is this sense of impending disaster. There is this sense of scarcity that all the characters feel that's, um, that's a huge part of their lives. So so it's absolutely in there. But it. it, it I would say that it's a central catalyst
1: because I'm thinking mm-hmm. about like, you yeah. know, without Rosie's work, you know, we don't have that climactic final compartment right. and that it is her work in a lot of ways that is this interesting parallelism to the sort of lost world and the and and the world reconnected to the way that work separates her from her girlfriend? Mm-hmm. It's working in all the work; <laughs> uh, it is functioning in all these different ways that felt very central to me.
0: Yeah, that's that's great. <laughs> that's that's wonderful to hear. Yeah, I I suppose it's it's on my mind. <laughs>
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, you're right that it's on all of our minds.
0: It's all, yeah. And, and so, you brought up Rosie, who is this character in the final section of the book who's sort of living in the shadow of the end of everything, maybe. And it felt radical to me that she would still be trying to make a life for herself in all the ways that are familiar to us. Yes. Um, the things that are, unfamiliar in that chapter are are mysterious and strange but but the things that are familiar are the things that everyone has wanted or wants at, at some point in their life you know stability love figuring out what it means to be alone or what it means to be with people what it means to make a community and she's doing all of this even though there might not be very much more time left for anyone and that felt not necessarily hopeful but but maybe a little bit hopeful or maybe the idea that we can't help but but want these things Mm -hmm.
1: and we're creatures of of hope even in the hopeless we we still return to it i think that's why i love things like station 11 or the last of us these dystopias that that hang on to the idea of hope and and even kind of utopic hope in a in a state of ultimate peril and i feel like that's that's rosie's story yeah there in stephanie's section we get the sense of the magic of creating space which you put inside bildungsroman coming of age story she can augment space grow it and shrink it according to her will she's able to seemingly shape matter itself but beyond the science fictional elements of the story is a metaphor for the ways in which our personal relationships create proximity and distance as a feeling, a sensation of belonging and being loved or being alienated and outcast. You, are, you started to talk about this when you talked about the ways in which we have all these metaphors for... For space that are connected to ideas of feeling, but I, I wanted you to say a little bit more about that, and, and maybe in particular about the Stephanie section.
0: Yeah, Stephanie is sort of a superhero, but without that terrible superhero narrative that we're all so tired of watching on TV and in movies and hearing about, or at least I am. <laughs> I I thought I thought a lot about the idea that maybe extraordinary things or the things that we can do that no one else can see springing from extraordinary emotions. And so Stephanie, for me, became this challenge to, you know, to think about what it means to be able to change the shape of the world if no one is there to witness it. And the larger question, I think, attached to that is, Do we change the world ever if no one is there to live our lives with us? Is a life lived alone, a life that still impacts the world? And Stephanie's story is a very firm answer of yes to that question because she very literally changes the shape of the world, even though most no one is there to witness her doing it. I think that I wanted to think about the space of loneliness and what that looks like, and not only what it looks like in a tragic sense, but the magic that's contained in loneliness, the impetus to create art that often springs from loneliness. I think that loneliness is capacious and private and therefore completely mysterious and vast. And so Stephanie's inner life became the terrain for that chapter of the book. She goes all across the country, but the main place where the reader is situated is is in her head.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's a it's a beautiful, but also it's such a sad section. I mean, she does she does profound things and they are meaningful to her even though she is alone but she is betrayed so so often and so fundamentally that it feels like the the superhero who can do things but still can't manage to to kind of do the one human thing that we that we need most of all And, uh, you know, I wonder if you if her superhero-ness, is it all sort of canceled out by the by the nature of her her sadness?
0: It's a great question. I guess the way the book would answer it is that nothing is ever canceled out. Hmm. Right. It's
1: that's true. You you take matter from one place and it's going to going to draw and change elsewhere.
0: Exactly. It appears somewhere else or. If you learn something about a person in your life, and then you learn that the opposite is, in fact, true, the new information doesn't cancel out the old information. It lives beside it. so i don't I don't know that the tragedy of Stephanie's story cancels out the extraordinary nature mm-hmm. of it. Um, I think they live beside each other, and that discomfort maybe amplifies both.
1: That's that's perfectly said. The going back to the that original terrace, the routine that Annie and Edward establish for Stephanie's visits, who we recognize uh, ultimately as the terrace's creator, involves the telling of semi-fictional or fictional stories about their lives together. And they call these terrace stories. Stories in your telling are themselves space makers. They open up room for people and other worlds to enter the smallness of our lives. You seem to be thinking about the capabilities of the novel and of, of fiction, and I wonder if you'd say, say more about that.
0: On a On a personal level, I always want to be writing books that are challenging the constraints and the expectations of their containers. So even your question, Chris, about whether this was a linked story collection or a novel, kind of sits right with me. I like I like the ideas, the idea of a novel that resists novelness and ask me to say more about what that means. And I couldn't tell you. <laughs> I think it it changes and evolves project to project depending on what I'm working on. But that is something that's so important to me in my own work. Um, asking about what what a novel can do that it hasn't done before or what a novel can do that no other form of art can do which I think is an important question especially right now where we're just inundated with different ways to experience narratives so important to me to justify the novel's existence um in my work and and more than that I think that there's this this thing that fiction writers say which, is well, it's not real. It's fiction, and I'm guilty of saying that all the time. And and it's true. It's not real. I I do not have a magic. Ter- I don't have any terrace. I don't have a magic one or a normal one either. But uh, oh,
1: I was gonna ask to come over to your <laughs> your imaginary terrace.
0: God, you'll be so disappointed. So disappointed. I don't. Yeah. So it is fiction. But but the funny thing about fiction is that the minute you put it into the world, it becomes real. It becomes a part of the world. And so much of my life has been shaped by fictions and things that are not real. And yet my life is real. And so those things are real too. That tension between the stories that we tell ourselves and the stories that we live and when the stories that we tell ourselves become lived stories it's very interesting to me, um, and I can think about books that that cross over that barrier, and become such an integrated part of my life that they they're no longer books; they're experiences. So I'm very curious about that.
1: Oh, that's so beautifully said. Yes, that is that names exactly my experience with the great books of my life. They are yeah. they are experiences rather than just some fictional object that i uh, encountered they they feel woven into my memories
0: i think that's what bachelard would call an inhabited uh experience mm-hmm. of a book i think i think that there's an overlap there
1: There are fables wound into the structure of the novel. Um, One in particular is the hermit living at the edge of the king's castle in a form of neoclassical architecture called the folly. Anyone who loves Tom Stoppard's Arcadia will (laughs) recognize this fable. The folly is a purposeless piece of architecture meant to be ornamental, but you and Stoppard give it new life. Stoppard In questions of time and you of space and time. Does top stoppard's folly echo it all here? And why were you drawn to this fable?
0: Oh my gosh, you've it's like you've found all of the things in my life bibliography. It's just (laughs) oh my god, you know, no one has asked me about Arcadia, and I have not read that play for so many years. I'm like, I'm actually, I have goosebumps right now, but of <laughs> course, but of course, yeah. <laughs> I, so I, I can't say how I was directly thinking about it, but I think what you said about time is exactly how it made its way into that part of the book. You know, folly for me was, again, this, this union between language and architecture, because a folly is, structure, but it's also a word that describes behavior or Mm -hmm. foolishness. And and I loved that. I loved that together. Um, I loved those two things combined. And the chapter or the compartment in the book that's called Folly is a bit of a ghost story told out of order. And um, the characters are dealing with what it means to have a sense of how things will go or how things will end, and to choose to go in that direction anyway. There's um, there's a comedy to it, there's a lightness to it, but it is also about confronting death. And the, the final moment of that chapter is um, a moment that's positioned as the last moment that this family experiences together, but the narrative lets you know that it's not the last moment It's just one of the last good moments. And so what's the difference in saying that it was the end? And I think uh, there's something about that time and that kind of space, um, the space of a folly, that is this this structure that's built to look ancient, but is Mm -hmm. not necessarily so. It's bumping up against time in productive ways that was appealing to me.
1: Yes, and and I really did feel stoppered in in even the structuring of the of the novel.
0: Yeah, I have to go back and oh my god, this is just this is wild. Thank you for bringing that up.
1: Oh, well, I, I, it, it's a real pleasure to me that uh, that it it exists as an experience for you as it does for me. I happen to have. Uh, acted in it uh, in, a, in a production at our at our college and 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 so I remember the scene kind of staring out over the the imagined space of the grounds of this house at the at the folly and i'm so it it came very starkly to me when i was when I was reading this and and what you said about how it's it's meant to evoke a certain time, a certain history, and yet it it often does the inverse and mm-hmm. does something different. And and I think that this your novel uh, is very interested in how uh, spaces that are meant to 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 feel some way or act some way end up doing doing something different.
0: Yeah, I don't think I can say it better than you just did. Absolutely, yeah. It's, uh places that are and this is this this could be said for human action too you know the the idea that the intention behind something i say or do reverberates differently in the world than i intended it to and i think uh, that the the spaces in the book behave in a similar way
1: no absolutely before I let you go, Hillary, I'd love to know what you've been reading and loving recently and whether you'd recommend anything for us.
0: Sure. So I just recently read Tomb Sweeping, which is a short story collection by Alexandra Chang, and it's a beautiful collection, um surprising, funny, moving. I was just completely blown away by these stories and this is um, Alexandra Chang's second book. Her first book, Days of Distraction, was also a favorite of mine. that came out in, in 2020, um, and that was a novel. So if you were a fan of that book, I strongly recommend this one. Um, the stories are formally inventive and also just devastating and with characters that are unforgettable. So I, I strongly recommend Tomb Sweeping.
1: She was my second ever interview. Really? Her, her first novel takes place in Ithaca, and she used to live in Ithaca, where I am. Um, and I'll be interviewing her again for this one, but I haven't read it yet. So oh my God.
0: I, it's wonderful. It's
1: I'm wonderful. excited.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I loved it. Um, an- Another recommendation, let me think. I just read the new Yuri Herrera mm-hmm. story collection, Ten Planet, which is, planet. Um, okay. I'm recommending story collections today. These stories are wild and unpredictable and have these incredibly intricate conceits. And the very first story in the collection deals with extinction um, in a way that is totally surprising and Unlike anything I've read, so the, these stories knocked the top off my head, and that's Ten Planets by Yuri Herrera.
1: Wonderful! That I I always appreciate a good short story collection, and I'm I'm happy to have these recommendations, and I just can't recommend enough. Terra story, and I think it's just a remarkable novel, and it's one of my favorites of the year, if not my favorite. And so it was such a, a gift to get to talk to you about it, Hillary.
0: Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you for this was a pleasure, and thank you for lifting books out of my foggy past for me to remember. Like <laughs> go read Artadia again.
1: Oh well, that's or watch
0: that... it. It's like a PBS. Recording? Yes,
1: there's a PBS recording of of one of the best uh, the best versions.
0: Guess what? That's what I'm doing tonight. So,
1: thank oh, you. <laughs> fantastic! Well, thanks again. Well, that's all from me for now. My thanks to Hillary Leichter for a wonderful conversation about her newest novel, Terra Story. You can find links to purchase Terra Story and all of Hillary's recommended short story collections at the website burnedbybooks.com. There you'll find all of our previous episodes, links to buy a podcast shirt and ways to get in contact. As you listen, take a moment to rate the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Until next time, this has been Burned by Books.